Good reminder. All year is Christmas, right? There are two passages of Scripture we want to look at this morning as we continue to talk about the prophecies regarding the coming of Christ. Isaiah 61, if you have your Bibles, you can open there, as well as back into Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at the first two verses of Luke 61 and verses like 14 to 21 of Luke 4. There are many different ways that people learn about who God is and then describe Him. The country church that I grew up in Kansas was literally situated in the middle of of a wheat field, and inside that country church on the If you look toward the front on the right side, there was a picture where the original was painted in 1853 by an artist by the name of William Holden. And he painted a portrait of Jesus that depicted Jesus standing outside knocking on a door. And it was a depiction of Revelation 3.20 that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him and sup with him and he with me. And if you look at that picture, there's one distinguishing characteristic about it, that the door has no outside handle, meaning that Christ only comes in to our lives by invitation. So as a young boy growing up in that church and seeing that picture through two or three times, up to four times a week, it left an impression on me realizing that God was never going to force His way into my life. I had to invite Him. Different people have different ideas. The Former Miami Dolphin linebacker by the name of Norm Evans says this. In his book, God Squad, he describes God. He said, I guarantee you Christ would be the toughest guy who ever played the game. If he were alive today, I picture a six foot six, 260-pound defensive tackle who would always make big plays. So we each have our own idea, and the Bible is good to give us an idea of who Jesus actually is. In the Bible, there are more than 400 names for God. He is wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is the way. He is the truth. He's the life. And you wonder, why is it so important for us to have an idea of who God is? A.W. Tozer answered this question by, answered the question, why is it important for us to have a picture of God by saying this. He said, what comes into our mind when you and I think about God is the most important thing about us. And the reason it's so important is because who we think God is determines what we expect from Him, how we relate to Him, how we serve Him, how we give ourselves or don't give ourselves to Him. See, we need to have a picture of God that lets us know that He wants a relationship with us. Marcus, or Justin Welby, was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he was speaking to a group of church leaders. And after he was done, a man asked a question saying, what is the greatest challenge facing Christians today? And this was his answer. Without hesitation, he said, every Christian I meet cannot quite believe that they are loved by God. And if there's one thing that God wants to do, he wants to convince you that he loves you. He wants to let you know that you are safe with him. Well, this morning I want to talk about four things, five things that Jesus does that confirms through truth that God loves you. And I trust that as we talk this morning, you're going to get a clearer picture of how much God loves you specifically. Isaiah 61. In this passage of Scripture, we understand that it was written approximately 700 years before Jesus was born. 
Isaiah was a prophet, a representative of God that came to let us know what to expect concerning the coming Messiah. So when he writes, he tells us as if he is speaking for the Messiah, what the Messiah will say, what the Messiah will do. So in Isaiah 61, he says these words, speaking on behalf of God in the proclamation of the coming Messiah. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now, remember that that this is a prophet of God saying in 700 years, this prophecy is going to come true. Now turn to Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, what we see is in chapter 4, Luke is giving the beginning segment of Christ's ministry. In the early part of Luke 4, he, the Bible says that Jesus went into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by Satan. After coming out of the wilderness, this temptation period, verses 14 and 15 talk about what he did before going to Nazareth. Verse 14 and 15 says, Jesus returned from the wilderness in the, spirit, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then it says, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding community or country. Now, what was the report? Well, Jesus at that point began his ministry. He began doing miracles. People soon began to see that Jesus was not an ordinary man. He was sent for God and how he lived his life described it. And then it says he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So what was Jesus doing after he came out of the wilderness? He was with people. He was interacting. He was sharing his life. He was sharing his message. He was healing people. It's during this time that he probably went with his mom and his disciples to the wedding in Cana of Galilee and turned the water into wine. Now, after that, after Luke records that in verses 14 and 15, we read of his entrance coming in to his hometown, into Nazareth. Now, it's important to know that the people of his hometown, Nazareth, had been hearing the report that was going out. They had heard that Jesus, who grew up in their town, that this, this young man was out doing miracles. He was out, you know, proclaiming that the kingdom of God was coming. And so, they, are, they heard they got news that Jesus was coming to Nazareth, and so they were looking forward to this, this child of the city, this good boy is coming home, and we want to see him. Now, if you go on Highway 252 west out of Minot, and you go to North Portal, you cross the border, you get on Highway 39, and you begin driving to, to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, you'll see that there's a lot of little towns there. And if you go through, it's either the town of yellow grass or milestone, before you get to the town, there is a big sign and it says, yellow grass is the home of, and underneath there is the name of a famous NHL hockey player. What is this town saying? Saying that part of their heritage, part of their renown, part of what they're known for is having this hockey player who made the NHL be from their small city. And I imagine a little bit that what was going on from Nazareth. People, maybe they had a committee going to say, boy, this continues, we're going to have to put up a sign out front, home of Jesus, doer of miracles. But they were looking forward to Jesus coming. People were talking about it. They might have been saying things like, yeah, I remember Jesus. He was on my donkey racing team. I bought an olive table from his father, Joseph. You remember I had him in synagogue in the Sunday school class. He was so quiet. Can you imagine the things that he's doing now? And then in verse 16, we come back to the story, and it says, As he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
Now you need to understand that the synagogue where Jesus is now going is where he grew up as a child. How many of you have the same place you sit every week when you come to church? Anybody here? Jesus had his family probably sat in the same place every week. He sat there, he heard the Torah, he, he was in Sunday school class, the people knew him, and now he was coming back as an adult back to his home church. Now there was an order of service that the Jewish synagogue service followed pretty much every week. It started off by the singing of hymns, either Psalm 145 to 150. After that, they said the Shema was a declaration of faith that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Next, they recited the 18 benedictions, 18 separate statements that were affirmations of what, of, of key tenets of the Jewish faith. And after that, a designated officer of the church would go to the Ark of the Covenant, take out the Torah scroll, scroll, open it to the designated place where it was read by someone in attendance that day. After the scripture was read, the teacher would come, he would sit down, he would give a sermon, and then at the end of the sermon, they would have a benediction, usually Numbers 6, 24 to 26, that says this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. So Jesus comes in, to the synagogue, he comes into their service, verse 17 and following. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll, and listen to what he says this, and he found the place where it was written. In other words, Jesus wanted to read a very specific passage of Scripture. And this passage of Scripture was a fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah had said 700 years previous. This is what he said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that was the end of the scripture reading. And then Luke goes on to say, and Jesus, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That was an indication that he was going to share, he was going to say something about what he had just read. And then it says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. What is this child of our city going to say? What are they, what's he going to talk about? And he, Jesus, began to say to them, today, this scripture has been, has been fulfilled in your hearing, declaring himself the promised Messiah. Now, I would encourage you to go through the rest of Luke 4 this afternoon and see how the people received his message Remember the, thing, remember the saying that a prophet is not received well in his own home? You'll see that in the rest of Luke 4. But this morning I want to focus in on five things that Jesus does as a Messiah that you and I can count on and are indications of his love for us. Number one, Jesus came to bring good news to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. When he says the word poor, he's not talking about being financially poor. He's talking about, and he is referring to those who are poor as it pertains, as it relates to have no, as having nothing of value or substance to offer to God. He is talking about the fact to which that we can come to God thinking we have a lot or we can have little. We have great need of God or little need of God. Let me make this statement. Two the degree, the degree to which we give ourselves to God is related directly to how much we feel we need God. We relate God based on how much we think we need Him. If you have a little sense of God, you're going to relate to Him in a little way. If you have a great sense of need of God, you're going to relate to Him as a basis of that need. Let me give you two examples of what this means. In Luke chapter 
18, verses 9 to 14, Jesus tells a story. Let me read it for you. But then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, and adulterers. I am certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector sat at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven. As he prayed, instead he bent his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humble, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee had any, very little of any need of God. For the tax collector, it was full disclosure. He was overwhelmed by his sin. He knew he was in deep trouble. And he cried out to God saying, God, only you can save me. Only you can give me what I need. In Luke 7, there's another story. The Bible says Jesus is eating at the home of one of the Pharisees. And while he is eating, while they're waiting for the meal to be prepared, a woman breaks in who was said to be an immoral woman, probably a prostitute. She runs up to Jesus. She finds him. She has tears running down her face. She kneels before him and anoints his feet with expensive perfume. The Pharisees see these as people as described in the previous chapter from Luke 18 as being thinking their self-righteous was enough, and they say, how can Jesus let this happen? Doesn't he know who this woman is, and he is allowing her to touch him? Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he turns, I believe, to the Pharisee who owned the home, and he said, let me tell you a story. Let's say that you owe two people money, and one person owes you, or rather, people, two people owe you money. And one owes you a small amount of money, one owes you a tremendous amount, tens of thousands of dollars, and you forgive both of their debts. Who is going to be the most grateful? And the man correctly answers, the one who owed more would be more grateful and loving. And Jesus said, that is how this woman is. She realizes the amount of her sin that has been forgiven. She reveals, it reveals the heart of one who knowingly has been forgiven much. And then Jesus makes this statement, the one who is forgiven little loves little, but the one who knows they have been forgiven much loves much. There are two words, friends, that describe the attitude of a person who realizes how much they need God's forgiveness. The first is contrite. A contrite individual is one who is sincerely remorseful for what they have done that was wrong. They give no excuse. They never minimize the effect of their sin on themselves or the effect on God. Do you realize that God is emotional, that when we sin, our sin affects him emotionally? He feels emotionally the disappointment of our disobedience. The other word is penitent. To be penitent penitent means that the person realizes that they are fully accountable for their sin and they want help. They are in trouble and they know it. They humbly come to God. They submit to Him. They acknowledge that God is and has what they need. Friends, we need Christ's death to pay the penalty for our sin and we need His His resurrection to assure us that we can have victory over our own sin. We need to say, God, would you give me a sense of my own sinfulness so that we can realize what our legacy is going to be. In 1888, Alfred Noble had the rare privilege of reading his own obituary. 
His brother Ludwig had died, and the French newspaper mistakenly thought that Alfred Nobel had died, and they wrote his obituary. So one morning he gets up and he reads, thinking he's going to read his brother's obituary, he reads his, and this is what it said. It said, Alfred Nobel, the prolific Swedish inventor, the merchant of death, has made it possible to kill more people more quickly than anyone in history. And when Alfred read that, how that's how he would be remembered as an agent of death, he said it sent shockwaves through his soul. Reading that obituary became a defining moment, a defining moment for him to change the way he would be remembered. See, Alfred Noble was a creator of nitroglycerin. And when nitroglycerin was mixed with absorbent sand and shaped into sticks called dynamite, the explosion made possible the digging of tunnels and the construction of dams. It saved time, money, and lives. But when this nitroglycerin and sand was in the wrong hands, it became a weapon of mass destruction, killing many. So what did Alfred do? He did not want that to be his legacy, so he spent the rest of his life fighting for peace. In fact, after reading his obituary, Noble rewrote his last will and testament, and on November 27, 1895, he made the decision to use his fortune, $9 million, to fund one of the most coveted awards in the world, the Nobel Peace Prize. He did not want to be known as a master, the man who created something to destroy the most lives. He wanted to be known as peace. What did he have? He had a sense of need to change his life. He had a sense to be remembered and to have his life changed. Friends, for you and I, we have the good news of knowing that when we recognize our sin and we are humble, we come to God, his death pays a penalty, pays a debt for our sin. For every one of the five things I'm going to mention this morning, friends, the only way we receive from God what he promises is if we ask for it, if we are humble. God answers and presents us with his release With his help, with his encouragement, he gives it to those who ask. Number two, Jesus came to release those in captivity. The word captive refers to those who have been captured and cannot on their own get free. It is impossible for them to get free unless someone sets them free. Now, how many of you know what it's like to be held captive by something? To be held captive by food or by alcohol or guilt or anger, by your past or your fears of the future, or by sex or by money or anything else? Our news has recently been saturated by those who had seemingly had no control over their sexual urges, and now the news is coming out about the effect of what they have done. We are hearing of the abuse and the pain this sense of entitlement and a lack of control caused. And now they've been caught, that they've been caught, we read that they are going to treatment centers to find the help they need, and hopefully they will change their habits And they're hoping also to have a refurbished reputation. But the Bible says that you can go to all the treatment centers you want. There is a greater need that every one of us have. And Jeremiah mentions it in Jeremiah 7, 19. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Have you ever been in a situation where I have been in, where I've looked at my life, I've thought of my actions, I've looked at my thoughts and said, how could I possibly ever think or do that? Why is it? Because my heart without God is desperately sick. What is the answer? In Ezekiel 36, God says this through the prophet, I will give you a new heart 
and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart, and I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. How do we get the ability to obey God and follow him? With God's spirit in us. When do we get God's spirit? When we come to God and say, I need your debt to pay the debt for my sin. I come to you humbly and I ask for your help. I ask for your help. There's an old hymn, some of you might have sung, called, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. It was written by Charles Wesley, and he wrote it on the first anniversary of his conversion, kind of a testimony of what God had done in his life, what he had seen God do in his last year of having God control and give him this new heart. Verse 4 says this, Jesus breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Jesus came to set our, us free. I, I think as I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking back to my early years in high school, freshman, sophomore, and junior, and I had a uh, horrible habit of swearing. I was good at it. I did it a lot, and I, it was a horrible habit. And I remember distinctly talking to a friend of mine driving in his car, and he said, Barry, you'll never be able to change that habit. You do it so much, you'll never begin to quit, you'll never begin to quit swearing and saying words that are inappropriate. That was up until my junior year in high school. After my junior year in high school, I recommitted my life to Christ. When I came back to high school my senior year, there was no more swearing. Why? Because God gave me a new heart. The Bible says that what we say comes out It's an expression of what's in our heart. See, how many of us need God to do a heart makeover, to change our heart, to change our lives, to get us in a new place with our Heavenly Father that we, at the very things we look at ourselves that we want to change, friends, we can never do it on our own. We come to God and say, God, would you make a new heart in my life? The sins, the habits that you need to be set free. The starting place is humbly coming to Jesus, acknowledging our sin that has us tied up and receiving his forgiveness, receiving his grace, and turn God loose on whatever you cannot control. I can't do it, God. I'm turning you loose to change my life. Without admission, without admission and submission, there is no liberty, there is no freedom. The third thing Jesus came to give sight to the blind Again, we're not talking about physical blindness, even though Jesus healed many blind. Here he's talking about people being blind to their need of God. They cannot see their need. They cannot see that they are missing something. They might know something is wrong, but they don't even know to come to God to have him meet that need. They know they're missing something. They don't know it's God. Jeremiah the prophet explains it this way. He says, those people have eyes, but see not. They have ears, but they can't hear not. They can't get to the truth. They're blinded and they're deaf to spiritual things. Luke, in chapter 1, verses 78 and 79, quotes the prophet Zechariah, who says this, adds to this about what Jesus has come to do. He said that Jesus came to to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Paul says in Ephesians 5, For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Second Corinthians 4, 6 continues it. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. Think about this. It's God's desire that his light shines in our hearts. 
Now, does that mean that if we are diligent in giving submissive to God, asking God to do what we cannot do, to change what we cannot change, can we expect his life to shine through us? Absolutely, through this passage. But friends, you will never do it by being analytical. You will never do it by trying to figure it out. You will never do it by knowledge or instinct. You will do it as you release yourself to God and say, God, I'm going to cooperate with your transformation of me to let the light of God come into our lives, to have him open our eyes so that his light can come in and we can be changed. What does it mean to have our eyes opened? Mark Batterson in his book, Whisper, tells a story that his wife told him about meeting a refugee couple in Greece at a refugee camp. The man's name was Emmanuel, who was born and raised in Iran. His wife, Amanda, was from Kurdistan, Well, Emmanuel grew up as a Shia Muslim, and regular prayer was a part of his religious duty, but he said that he felt when he prayed that no one was listening. Someone gave him a Bible and told him that God wanted to speak to him. So he simply began, he asked God. He said, Jesus, reveal yourself to me if you're real. And that's precisely what happened. Emmanuel had a vision of Jesus and heard his voice. His newfound faith in Christ put his life in jeopardy. He had to leave Iran. That's how he met his wife, Amanda, in Istanbul. And this is more than just love at first sight, for God whispered to to Emmanuel that Amanda was to be his wife, despite the fact that they did not speak the same language. Well, the day after they were married, Emmanuel was miraculously able to speak and understand his wife's Kurdish language. The newlywed couple fled Turkey, traveled by boat to Greece. The trip took longer than they thought. Amanda got really deathly ill. And one night, a light came in into their cabin, into their tent, And Emmanuel heard a voice say help was on the way. They got Amanda to a hospital, but the doctors were not there to help. Were not able to help, rather. Well, one night, Amanda was in the hospital, had a vision of Jesus standing by her bed, putting his hands on her head and praying for her. When she woke up, her symptoms were gone. The doctors did not want her to leave, but Amanda checked herself out of the hospital. Why? Because she knew that she had seen the great physician. She immediately left the hospital and was baptized. The couple is now training to be the first Arabic-speaking pastor of a church in Thessalonica. Friends, don't ever doubt God's ability to open the eyes of the blind and to give sight to those who cannot see spiritually. Some of you are praying for people that lost. Pray that God opens their eyes. Some of you have issues in your life that you don't understand. Pray that God will give you sight. Pray that God will give you insight. Pray that God will help you. It starts with admission and submission, and that releases the power to change our lives. He came to set the prisoner free, to give us liberty and to set us free that sins of sins and difficulties that entrap us. Number four, Jesus come, came to give freedom to the oppressed. The last part of verse 18 said, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The word oppressed means shattered, broken in pieces, or crushed by life circumstances, and to have no way out of that situation. There are two applications, I believe, for this particular sentence in this passage of Scripture. The first is referring to those who are caught up in sin and don't know how to get out of it. Apologist Ravi Zacharias says this about sin. You might have heard it before. He says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Some of us have found that to be true. In fact, I would suggest that if you have bowed your knees before God and invited him into your life, that to some degree you realize that you no longer wanted to live under the dominion of sin. You wanted to have a new life because you didn't like where it was taking you. 
See, on our own, we have no answer for sin, no remedy for guilt, no path to freedom. The Bible says that the cost of sin is eternal death. And friends, we, and we have live in a society that has become very resistant to hearing the truth of God's Word. We tell the truth of God's Word and we're, we're, we're told that we're offensive. You know what the Bible says? The Bible said it is, some of its words will be offensive to us. But the Bible says clearly that if you and I do not come to Jesus, if we do not ask that his death be payment for our sin, that we will have to pay the debt of our sin after we die. And that means we will go to hell, eternal damnation, for a debt that Jesus has already paid for. For a debt that that Jesus has already paid the price for. Let me put this in different perspective. At some point previous to January 10th, 1901, an oil company came to a family living outside south of Beaumont, Texas. The oil company said, we believe that there is oil on your land, and if you let us drill and we find oil, we will give you uh, money for each gallon of oil we pull out of the ground. Well, the family signed that document and, on Jan- and, drug- and dug the oil well. And on January 10, 1905, an oil well that was later known as Spindle Top blew for nine days at an estimated rate of over 100,000 barrels per oil that each day. That family that owned that land became multimillionaires, or did they? Here's the question. When did that family become millionaires? Did they become millionaires on the day that the oil well, well hit oil? Or were they millionaires all along and just simply didn't know it? See, this is the principle. This is the truth. God has already put in the bank all the money that you need to pay your debt of sin. His death on the cross paid your debt of sin, paid my debt of sin. And right now, anybody who has not had that debt paid can come to Christ and he will pay that debt and erase it forever. But sometimes we sit with the debt of sin weighing on our hearts, weighing on our lives, knowing, not knowing that we could be free in the heartbeat of a prayer. Today, if you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, if the debt of sin is still weighing on your heart, you have the opportunity to come knowing that there's more than enough money, there's more than enough to pay your debt. Christ's death paid your debt for your sin, and there's more than enough for everyone. He came to set those who were locked up in sin free. The second application of this verse is for any child of God who has has is or will encounter a life problem that's bigger than they are. Cancer, debt, fear, guilt, depression, a struggling marriage, an addiction to alcohol, drugs, or sex, whatever it is, this passage says that God will lead you to freedom in any of those areas if you will simply come to Him and ask for His help. Now, in some cases, like with my swearing, God might remove it immediately. There are other things God has taken a lot longer to purify my life from. And you know what? I have discovered that as God changes me and he removes the sin, he is transforming my life. He is making me more like him. He is transforming and giving me, what? A new heart. The fifth thing that Jesus came to do is to proclaim the favor, the year of favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The word favor means goodwill, excessive kindness, preferential treatment. It means that God is giving us a gift that we could never have any part in securing. He is announcing the year of the Lord's favor has come in the coming of a Messiah. 
In other words, Jesus came to shower us with unmerited grace and mercy and kindness, to bring good into places where there was no good, to bring hope where there was distress and peace where there was conflict. Jesus' coming was good news to give us freedom. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus cares about you? Mary Ann Bird was born in Brooklyn, New York, in August 1928. A severe cleft palate required 17 surgeries, but the psychological pain of that malady was far worse. Mary Ann could not do simple things. She couldn't blow up a balloon or drink from a water fountain. Worst of all, her classmates teased her mercilessly. Mary Ann was also deaf in one ear. So one of the most difficult days of her school years was the day of the school hearing test. The whisper test isn't done in schools anymore, so let me explain what happened. A teacher would call a child to her desk and ask him to cover one ear, and then she would whisper in the other ear something like, the sky is blue, or you have new shoes. And if the student repeated the phrase back successfully, they passed the test. Well, Marianne had enough pain in her life, and she didn't need the humiliation of failing that test. So when the, t- when the teacher whispered into her bad ear, she would cup her good ear, hoping to hear what she said. Well, there was one year she didn't need to do that, for she had, as a teacher, Miss Leonard. And Miss Leonard was a teacher who loved her students. And looking back on this encounter, Mary Ann said that she had waited years to hear the words that Miss Leonard spoke to her, and she said they were words which God must have put into her mouth, seven words that changed her life. See, Miss Leonard didn't choose a random phrase. Instead, she leaned across the desk, got as close as she could to Mary's good ear, and whispered, I wish that you were my little girl. Do you know what, friends, today? If you are here and you do not have a relationship with God, the Heavenly Father is whispering those words to you this morning. I wish you were my child. I wish you were my son. I wish you were my daughter. And if you have made that decision, you know what he's whispering to you? I'm glad you're my son. I love you. I'm glad you're my daughter. And God has been whispering those words since before you were born. Why did Jesus come? I read, listening to a TED talk a couple weeks ago, and there's a man by the name of Ken giving a talk, and he was telling a story about his son being in a Christmas pageant. And of course, there's Mary and Joseph with the baby and the three wise men come in and the first son, first little boy comes in and says, I bring you gifts of of gold. The second says, I bring you gifts of myrrh. And the third little boy says, Frank sent me. (laughs) Frank didn't send him, God sent him. God sent his son into the world so that we might have all the things all the things that Isaiah listed, all the things that Jesus said was true. And we have the opportunity to claim every one of those this morning. Admission and submission, God help me. He has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. Would you stand with me as we close this morning in prayer? Would you bow with me? If you are here this morning and have not had the opportunity for the debt of your sin to be paid, I would be amiss not to give you the opportunity to do so. And I would encourage you to pray this prayer, either in your heart or out loud. The prayer is simple. It says, Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I receive your death 
as payment for my sin. I receive you today as my Savior and as my Lord. Make me the person you've raised me to be. Father God, we all come today needing a reminder of the words of Isaiah and the truth that Jesus spoke of himself. Lord, might we come with hands open, admitting our need, that we might receive for you. Father, for you, for you can put nothing into a closed fist, but you can fill an open hand and an open heart. Give us a pure heart. Change our minds, change our hearts. And may we give ourselves to you as an extension of the gratitude for all you've done for us. And as you leave, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Go in his peace.